Today I'll be speaking with a very special guest, someone who has been a cancer patient themselves as a very young person and also is now a very famous colorectal surgeon who's in Singapore. I'm speaking about Dr. Francis Xia Chun. Uh, he has quite a prestigious career, uh, getting his qualifications for surgery in Singapore at the National University in 1981, and then his surgical qualifications in 1987. He subsequently subspecialised in colorectal surgery, interestingly, in 1989, and then he worked at St Mark's Hospital in London with many world-class surgeons. When he returned to Singapore, he helped establish the first colorectal surgery department in Asia at the Singapore General Hospital. And he's well established now in the field of colorectal surgery. He's leading the field, in fact, in Asia, particularly in the area of robotic technique, and he frequently trains in a number of other countries. He's also consulted uh, by surgeons from all over the world with regard to the best method of handling difficult cases. And um, he's helped to establish an amazing new hospital in Singapore, Fortis uh, Colorectal Hospital, and we'll be talking to Francis in a moment. Welcome back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm your host, Grace Gawler. And today, um, as we've introduced previously, you'll be hearing from Dr. Francis Xiao Chun from Singapore. So welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Grace. Um, Everybody. Yes, it's uh, really good to have you on the show. I've been wanting to uh, interview you for some time. Now, you've got a prestigious background in colorectal surgery, uh, which we'll talk about throughout today's show. Um, but your encounter with cancer goes back to an early childhood experience. Can you tell us about that experience and how it uh, may have shaped your career? Yes, I. well, as you know, Grace, I had um, childhood uh, malignancy and that actually, at that time, I presented very suddenly with intestinal obstruction and pain and I had, in fact, an emergency laparotomy and resection of about two to three feet of intestine and that's actually uh, the small intestine on the, on the terminal ileal side. Now, the diagnosis at that time was a toss-up between um, Hodgkin's lymphoma and um, the what we call um, another kind of tumor which um, may be arising from the muscle wall. Uh, so what happened was that subsequent to that I had uh, quite a prolonged course of real therapy as chemotherapy uh, so that at that time I was about seven years old. This is way back in 1964 and subsequent to that, they told me that it was confirmed with Burkitt's lymphoma. So, in fact, I was the first diagnosed case here in this country with that disease because if you know, Burkitt's lymphoma was first described late in the 50s. And that has actually affected me somewhat because I understand a bit of the problems that patients undergo during surgery as well as chemotherapy and radiotherapy. And in fact, it also in some ways shaped my decision to become a surgeon. Mm. So you had uh, you had those uh, various treatments, surgery, radiation, chemotherapy during that time. That yeah. must have been very, uh, very tough on a young fellow. <laughs> well, I tell you, I was in hospital for quite a long time. When I got out of hospital, 
um, you know, I, 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 in fact, I was the youngest person in, the, in that hospital at the time, um, and everybody thought I had appendicitis, or of course I had something more major. Um, it was tough because when I went back to school, it was just after, just before the midterms exams, and in fact, I had only up to that time, you know, studied how to add and 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 subtract. And I didn't understand what the division sign and what the multiplication sign was, so I just <laughs> <laughs> I just did what I what I what I could, and of course, you know, I ended up somewhere in the middle of the class in so far as ranking for the exam, so I was quite upset. Uh, the radio therapy wasn't, you know, um, didn't go very well with me either. I I still remember the smell and the you know the effect of that burnt flesh, uh, which gave me quite a lot of uh, nausea and. Uh, lots of appetite. In fact, I remember that for years after that, I couldn't take the smell of um, barbecued meat because it just gave me a nauseating feeling. Mm. And, you know, I also had chemotherapy at that time. So uh, as a cancer survivor, how many of your patients that uh, come to see you actually know your story? I guess you, uh, you're in the press a lot in Singapore. Uh, do people mention that they've come because you've had that experience? Um, I had uh, given an interview in the papers in Singapore about this um, condition that I suffered years ago, um, and I did mention in there that I feel that I have more compassion, you know, for patients undergoing this treatment because I can understand how they what they went through and what they're suffering from, um, and I do have that clipping actually hang on my wall in my practice, um, but and and some patients do read it and and, and say, look, you know, wow. You know, you have gone through this, what I'm going through, uh, and, and, and they feel like I can empathize with them a bit more. But I haven't had any patients actually coming to see me because they said, oh, they, they thought I might be more empathetic than other doctors. <laughs> no. That's very interesting. Uh, you know, I think if I was in that position, I, w- I wouldn't mind going to see someone with that degree of empathy for, uh, for my particular situation. Um, but I'd like to uh, to move on now from your story, which is a great introduction to your work. And um, so let's discuss prevention of colorectal cancer specifically. Um, I'd like to ask you about the education programs for cancer patients and physicians, and especially about your new ebook that you launched, the Handbook for Colorectal Diseases. Um, can you tell us why you chose that book to celebrate your first year um, with the launch of the um, of the book with the hospital? And tell us how physicians can access it. Yes, actually, we wrote a handbook for colorectal diseases. This handbook can actually be downloaded from the Apple iStore. Um, I think it costs zero point nine nine cents wow. to download. <laughs> Um, the I think you have the um, the address right for the download, uh, Grace. Yes, yes, I'll be able to yes, actually put that on the website. Give that to to our listeners if they want that. Now, the reason we felt that we should uh, write a small handbook on colorectal diseases is because I think there's lots of uh, myths and uh, well, you know, um, what we call fairy tales out there and popular myths out there which actually do not help patients in the prevention or the detection or the early diagnosis of colorectal cancer. Um, so we felt that we should uh, you know, do something along this line which will better educate, especially our general practitioners, 
so that they can be in a better position to better educate patients uh, insofar as uh, the diagnosis and prevention of colorectal cancer is concerned. Yeah, there's a lot of fear, isn't there, around um, this particular area? And uh, I guess uh, it's an interesting area for you to work in, given your background. So uh, do you think a lot of patients uh, leave things a little bit too late because they're not educated about colorectal cancer and the early detection? Yeah, well, I think, you know, there are three things which work against um, early detection. I think one is the fear of cancer itself. Uh, Somehow, you know... Uh, some patients don't want to know if they have any problems. So if, um, you know, there are some symptoms, they ra- they they rather believe that there's nothing rather than go for early detection. And uh, second, a lot of uh, general practitioners uh, don't really refer patients, even appropriate patients, for early screening or early uh, diagnostic procedures because, you know, it's just a little bit, more troublesome, you see. They have to go to some facility where they've got facilities and so forth to do uh, more in-depth screening. And thirdly, I think uh, there is a perception which is quite wrong uh, amongst the public that if you adopt certain lifestyle, uh, you will prevent colorectal cancer. And I think that's something that I'm quite, um, you know, well, I, I would say, you know, um, fiercely against because I think you know, we should really give the right information, not information which is half right and which misleads people into thinking that they're protected because of certain lifestyle or because of certain foods they eat or don't eat and so forth. And that's a really good point, and it's certainly something that uh, bears out in my own practice over many years. I've seen everyone from meat eaters to fruitarians to vegetarians to vegans um, yeah. all develop colorectal cancer. Yes. Um, what uh, what would you say are the key things that someone could uh, to do here when they really embrace um, in terms of looking at prevention? Uh, what sort of medical techniques? Yes, well, I think um, one first has to understand the background. A lot of these colorectal cancers actually ha- has a genetic background. So the first thing to understand is uh, the, the family history of the person involved uh, so that if uh, that particular person comes from a family where there is a strong history of correct cancer, then that person has to be much more aware than the average person who hasn't got a family history of colorectal cancer. Now, when I say a family history, uh, there are actually a lot of criteria, but in my own uh, simple, uh, you know, simplification of, of what a family history is, I often tell people that uh, if you've got three persons in a family who have colorectal cancer uh, from two generations, uh, so for example, grandparents, parents, or parents and children, uh, and if one of them uh, was aged less than 50 years of age, so you've got three, two, one, so I call it the three, two, one criteria, uh, then that determines that this uh, particular family has a strong history of colorectal cancer, then they've got to be much more aware Mm-hmm. Now, um, secondly, I think we know from all cancer statistics that uh, colorectal cancer is much more common in the older people, that is people above 50 years of age. So if anybody is in that category of age, then they should also be uh, more aware of their symptoms and from need for further screening. And thirdly, we know that people with symptoms um, 
which relates to the gastrointestinal, gastrointestinal tract should also be more aware that perhaps further screening and investigation may be necessary. Now, the sort of symptoms one can understand easily. If one picture the intestine as a tube, and if cancer arises, then there will be a lump in there, and this lump can obstruct fecal flow, giving rise to pain and cramps, uh, change in the bowel habit, bowel pattern, because that, that lump there within the wall is obstructing the flow of feces. So it's like a traffic jam. So you either get, you know, very thin traffic or you get slowed down traffic or, you know, only allowing small vehicles to go through. Uh, and, of course, if that lump then ulcerates, then you might see mucus discharge or blood, you know. Um, so, so these are things that, you know, people can be aware of um, and, and which may allow these patients to be detected earlier. Now, having said something about Earlier, second point about uh, you know uh, people above 50 years of age who should go for screening, and and, and I want to just add one more point here, and that is, whilst the, the patients above 50 years of age have a higher incidence of colorectal cancer, and in fact, uh, many anti-cancer societies around the world, including those in Australia, recommend screening for 50 years of age. I am actually a little bit concerned about this because I've met so many doctors that will only do corrector screening in patients aged 50 years and above. This is actually quite wrong if one wants to prevent cancer. If one wants to detect cancer, that may, perhaps may be correct, but cancers do not arise overnight. They start as small, tiny polyps which grow in the intestinal tract or in the colonic tract, you know, perhaps 5, 10, 20 years before cancer arises. So these polyps begin 20 years earlier and over a period of those many years, they become bigger until a stage is reached when a part of this benign polyp becomes cancerous. So in fact, if we screen people when they are 35 or 40, we have a much better chance of actually preventing uh, cancers from forming. Mm, I think that's really very useful advice. Um, we're going to take a break now, our first break on navigating the cancer maze, and we'll be back shortly. And uh, we'll continue this uh, conversation around the cause of colorectal cancer. So don't go away, we'll be right back. Of course, the most important, as we mentioned earlier, will be genetic cause. So there are families where there are genes which are transmitted from parents to children, which are liable to cause cancer. Now, some of these genes are multifactorial, which meaning that the genes are present, but unless the environment is is right and or rather wrong, which then aggravates these these genes to result in in cancer formation, the cancers may not manifest. But there are there are also genes present which can be inherited, uh, which are genes that have very strong penetrance. You know, we call them you know, autosomal dominant genes. And these genes, once they are inherited, the patient is bound to develop colorectal cancer. Uh, some examples of this are patients with familial adenomatous polyposis genes. Now, this sort of genes will result in children as young as 10 to 12 years old developing colorectal polyps. And these polyps don't develop singly. They can develop by the hundreds or thousands. And many of these people, by the time they are late teens, they would have developed colorectal cancer. Now, secondly, of course, uh, we know that uh, age is a factor in cancer development. 
and age because of degeneration of body processes, uh, a constant contact with cancer-causing agent in the environment. Uh, so as we grow older, we're more liable to develop uh, cancers. Uh, and and now, the third thing, of course, that a lot of people are concerned about is how our diet interacts to cause colorectal cancer. Now, there's a lot of talk uh, nowadays about red meat and about fat and about the effects of, of fiber. Uh, now, if we look very closely at all the papers uh, that have been published, and uh, you will, we will see that actually the effect or the protective effect on corrective cancer uh, prevention uh, of, of fiber is actually not that strong and neither is there a very strong uh, evidence uh, saying that uh, the ingestion of meat will cause uh, colorectal cancer. Uh, now, however, um, many people still believe that ingestion of meat and uh, will cause cancer and the ingestion of fiber prevent cancer. In our own experience, we have found that um, the evidence for this, when we look at the various papers published uh, with a non-biased view, uh, it's actually very minimal. And this is what I talked about earlier. When I said many people, because they believe this, and therefore they think if they are vegans or if they are vegetarians, the chance of them developing cancer will be very low. And therefore a lot of them do not actually come from screening until it's uh, uh, actually too late. Mm. Um with talking about the dietary aspects, what about when people have been to see someone like yourself and have had uh, surgery? Um, how do you find that diet impacts surgery after um, um, after your surgery? How does how does the impact of that um, yes, show up? Again, I think you know we have to dispel myths and we have to really uh, you know tell people the truth. Now, basically, what I want to say here is that there's actually no such thing as a healthy diet or, an, or rather a healthy food or unhealthy food. Now, all foods are actually good for the body. But what we need to eat would be dependent on what the body needs at a particular time. So even before we talk about surgery, you know, for example, if a young person wants to do a lot of exercises, you know, to keep trim and to, you know, be very fit, physically, then he should also take a lot of carbs because otherwise he would not have enough sugar you know, to maintain his, his endurance or his um, training regimen. But if a person wants to do a lot of weightlifting and build muscles, then he has to take a lot of proteins or a lot of meat, otherwise he can't build that muscle and otherwise he would not be you know, uh, healthy. But if a person you know, doesn't work, doesn't exercise, sleeps the whole day, then he shouldn't eat too much, otherwise you grow too fat, you see. Uh, if a person wants to you know, increase his body weight, he should eat more. If a person wants to lose body weight, he should eat less. And that's you know, the logical way of doing it. It's very simple. <laughs> now, a lot of people feel that you know, looking at oh, fiber is healthy, I should eat more fiber. Or you know, meat is unhealthy, I should eat less meat. Now, that will, will cause really um, you know, people whose body, bodies and whose, uh, are not really uh, healthy enough to withstand the onslaught of a lot of diseases. Now, in patients with with cancer, especially after surgery, uh, those uh, looking toward 
using chemotherapy, you know, to 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 maintain the cancer remission or to cure the cancer. A lot of patients get sucked into this belief that because of cancer, one should not eat any more meat and one should just go on a vegetable diet. Now we see a lot of these patients coming in severely malnourished, uh, and then you know they start losing their healing capacity. They start dropping their immunity and they are not even fit enough for, for chemotherapy. So I would say to these patients that uh, they should really, you know, have try and get a better understanding of how the body works because, uh, you know, the body requires protein for healing, for muscles, for skin, you know, even for hair, for repair. The body also requires, you know, sugar uh, as the energy to enable you know these processes of rebuilding a body to take place uh, vitamins and minerals are of course needed but most vitamins are needed only in small quantity we are actually you know poisoning ourselves with vitamins uh, by and large Mm, I, I think you've brought up some uh, very boot points there, and I'd certainly agree in my practice over the years. Uh, what I have seen is patients suffering malnutrition, massive weight loss, and then actually succumbing to the cancer, not because of the cancer, but because of the weight loss and no ability to fight it, as you rightly just said. And I think that's a very sad thing. So we need a lot more education, definitely, in that part of, uh, in that part of uh, cancer patients, uh, looking at the Internet, looking at uh, you know, various books, getting influenced. So we need to really be out there and helping people, as you say, to understand the nature of cancer and how the body works. Now, I'd like to go to Fortis at this point because... Um, how did Fortis actually come into being? It's a colorectal hospital. It's very specific with its uh, surgery techniques. And can you tell us something about your colleagues and your actual mission for this hospital? Yes. Well, uh, Fortis Colorectal Hospital uh, in Singapore started actually as a hospital that uh, was meant to be dedicated to the treatment to the diagnosis and to research in colorectal diseases. Um, we, are, the doctors who are involved in our group, are partnering Fortis Healthcare uh, to build this hospital, the name of this hospital, and to extend the facilities here to anybody who needs more advanced colorectal care. Uh, the mission, our own mission, really, uh, as doctors, is to look after patients with the best ability that we have, with the best techniques that are available, and with the equipment that is commensurate with the kind of disease that they have. Um, so that's why we have equipped this hospital totally with everything that is needed uh, for the proper treatment of anyone with colorectal disease. For example, we have a fully equipped inorectal physiology lab. We have a complete ultrasound lab. We have also the Da Vinci robot, you know, to enable us to do cases that need the robot. Uh, and also, um, we do a lot of laparoscopic work, and uh, you know that we are also doing uh, things like sacral nerve uh, modulation. We are doing, uh, you know, reconstruction of anus after patients have had their anus removed in uh, low rectal cancer, where normal parent resection had been necessary. So you know, the whole uh, gamut of uh, coronary techniques is available here in this hospital. Our aim is really to make uh, life better, uh, to prolong life and to add you know, quality to the life of patients who would otherwise un, you know, undergo some very unpleasant diseases 
or treatment thereof, which may also result in um, problems that if we can prevent, we want to prevent. And of course, with having such a high-tech hospital, you must be seeing major improvements in survival rates with uh, colorectal cancer patients. Yes, over the last you know many years, with more advanced techniques and more uh, a better understanding of how diseases spread, uh, you know, and a better treatment that's available, uh, patients obviously then will have better survival, uh, not just survival, but also a better quality of life thereafter. Mm, which, of course, is really, really important. Um, what do you consider as your hospital's forte? Uh, would it be your Da Vinci surgical system? And um, if so, could you explain a little bit about that? What is a robotic system? The forte of this, of this hospital is the combination of expertise in doctors as well as the willingness of the hospital to provide medical, the best medical care at uh, affordable price. The Da Vinci robot uh, here in this hospital is totally dedicated to the use of uh, patients with colorectal diseases. And in fact, uh, since the time that we have installed the robot in this hospital, uh, we have done uh, the most robotic cases uh, for colorectal diseases here in this country, Singapore. And um, because of the dedication of the staff, the, both the uh, surgical staff as well as the medical and nursing staff, uh, we have seen a very good result from the use of this robot for the treatment of patients with very low rectal cancer. Mm. So uh, I know that you uh, also uh, talk to a lot of overseas doctors when cases are very difficult. Could you just tell us a little bit about that? Well, um, as I said earlier, you know, we are very much into education and research. Uh, and our doctors, including myself, we do a lot of traveling. We are invited uh, to quite a few places around the world uh, to lecture, to demonstrate surgery, uh, and to interact with doctors because there's always something that we can learn one from another uh, so that we can improve both our understanding as well as our management and the way we do things. Um, we are, in this hospital, quite privileged in a way because we have become a center where many doctors from around the world come and join us for short periods of a couple of days to you know to a half a year to a year where they can learn and interact with us in terms of training and in terms of dissemination of skills and to see how we can manage patients in a better way. Fantastic. We've come to another break, um, Francis, on navigating the cancer maze. So we'll be back shortly and continue with talking about col colorectal cancer and Fortis Colorectal Hospital. We're back on navigating the cancer maze and talking with Dr. Francis Siachun from Singapore. And today we're talking about colorectal diseases, in particular colorectal cancer. Um, you were just describing the hospital facility. Um, could you run through a, um, what you would experience a day in the life of uh, Dr. Francis Siachun? What would that actually look like uh, in the hospital? And uh, can you tell us about uh, some of the patient experiences in the hospital as well? Well, yeah, I think, you know, because we are a small, dedicated hospital, Patients always have, are able to have a better experience, they have better interaction with both medical staff as well as nursing staff and other staff that are present in this hospital. One of the things that I learned when I was very young as a junior houseman, I was posted to a small hospital uh, and then to a big hospital, and I realized that in a small hospital, people treat you as friends, uh, you know, and then, you, of course, you have to prove to them that you are a friend. 
<laughs> in a big hospital where everybody treats everybody else as strangers, you know, and you've got to prove to them you're a friend before, before they become friendly with you. And in this hospital, we have tried to, um, you know, go along that approach. So, you know, people are friendlier, nurses are more caring, they are able to look at each person as individual rather than just somebody in the crowd, a stranger. Uh, so yes, we over the last uh, year and a half since we uh, started open this hospital, uh, I, I think I dare say that from patient feedback, uh, a lot of patients have very positive experiences, uh, both um, because of the surgical expertise as well as because of the, you know, the personal and personalized care of all the staff, medical and nursing and otherwise. I can remember being very impressed uh, with my first visit to the hospital. And uh, I, yeah, look, it was just fantastic. The atmosphere, um, it was quite a beautiful place to be in. And uh, uh, that was the first thing I think that really struck me. Just wonderful staff. And uh, I think you've done an amazing job with with actually putting this together to the degree that you have. So in the hospital, I believe uh, you had iPads when I visited. I was quite impressed by that. How do patients use those in the hospital? Oh, yes. Um, In all our inpatient wards and beds, we have an iPad for every patient. So when they get admitted to the hospital, we give an iPad if they like to use that, and they can use it for the duration of of, of their stay in hospital. Uh, in fact, every room in our hospital has got, you know, a movie on demand. So it's not just television, but, you know, it's like it actually what you get in a really good airline, you know, because you can choose from a whole range of, of movies on demand. Mm, I think popular with patients. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have a lot of people flocking to your door, I think. <laughs> um, at the hospital, what are you doing in terms of uh, the research uh, and, and targeted medicine and molecular medicine? Is that now playing a bigger role for you in, in how you look at colorectal cancers? Uh, yes, I agree. Uh, thanks for asking. Here at uh, Fortis Hospital, we are quite eager to you know do research on several fronts. One, of course, is clinical medicine. We're always looking at ways how to make life better for patients, how to make surgery uh, better so that we can treat better patients better. But also, we are quite big into molecular medicine. One of my colleagues here is quite uh, into molecular research, and we have actually partnered uh, you know, some of the bigger um, tissue banking facilities here and the A-STAR, which is the Agency for Scientific uh, and Medical Research here in Singapore. And we are, in fact, um, with patient permission, of course, uh, storing uh, samples of every uh, patient's blood, normal tissue, as well as cancer tissue. And we are looking at the various aspects of how this cancer can be better treated, better diagnosed, or better prevented. So that's a big thing for us here in, in, in this hospital. It's uh, We are quite lucky in many ways because many private hospitals are only looking at profit, uh, whereas here we are also looking at how we can actually, uh, you know, spend money on, on research, uh, which we feel would be paramount, you know, if we are to combat and to, you know, win the, win the battle for many of our patients. Sounds like really uh, what you're creating there is a model for the future, uh, which is very exciting. Yeah. 
Um, my next question for you is a bit personal for myself as well because uh, you were very much involved with your team for my own recovery, play, replacing my interstim device, and uh, I went to Singapore to have that. Um, the original one I had in Holland in 2003. So although it's not directly related to colorectal cancer, there's probably a lot of people listening to the show today that have issues that would benefit from Interstim. Could you talk about it, please, and explain what it is, what it does, and um, you know how it works and how it helps patients? Yes. Well, uh, there are two things when we talk about the pulse generator, the interstitial pulse generator. Firstly, I, sp I mentioned earlier a little bit about patients who would need uh, a permanent stoma, that is creation of an artificial anus somewhere in the abdomen. Now, these patients are normally patients who have had very low rectal cancer, uh, where the surgeon is not able to save the anus. Now, thankfully, of course, the proportion of the such patients have dropped dramatically from you know, 40, 50 percent uh, 30, 40 years ago to about less than uh, 5 percent now. But still, in this in these patients, we have to remove the anus, and therefore patients are not able to have a normal inner function. They have to pass or evacuate through a bag on the abdominal wall. Now, in appropriate patients, patients who are motivated and who would like uh, to get the function back, we can actually recreate the anus. What we do is we uh, put the stoma right down in the perineum where the old anus was, and at the appropriate time, we will bring a small muscle from the thigh, wrap around the anus to recreate the anal function so that they can control or relax the sphincter and pass motion or control motion as appropriately. Now, to this muscle, because this is a, a, a skeletal muscle, it fatigues after a minute. Now, we then attach uh, electrodes to this to a pulse generator, the interstitial device, and this device then converts skeletal muscle uh, to muscle which can contract permanently without uh, actually fatiguing. Uh, and, and in fact, we have done quite a lot of these cases and quite a lot of patients have good results. Uh, so the second thing about insystem is, uh, Grace, as in your case, uh, where we use it for functional problems. Patients with incontinence, or patients with constipation, uh, we, we find that when we actually put an electrode in the sacral uh, foramen where we stimulate the sacral nerves, a lot of these patients with incontinence or constipation, they improve dramatically. Um, the jury is still out as to how this actually works, you know, but we know it works. Um, and that's something that our team here is also very much involved in. Uh, and around the world where people are doing uh, this uh, sacral nerve stimulation, we have seen uh, very good results therefrom. Yes, um, I can attest to that. And on your website, the website also, folks, is absolutely excellent. Um, you can look at some of the robotic surgery that we've mentioned. Uh, there's some excellent material on interstim and also the other functions of the hospital. And the website is Fortis Surgical Hospital. Dot com. Fortis is F-O-R-T-S and another S for surgical, 
hospital.com. Now, that will be listed on the website on Voice America. So if you want to look that up, that is the place to go. Also, uh, look at the blog, gracescholarmedia.com. We're going to have another break on Navigating the Cancer Maze, and we're back to finish off shortly with uh, Dr. Francis Xiaochun. Don't go away. And we're back on Navigating the Cancer Maze with Dr. Francis Xiaochun from Singapore. Um, he has a very interesting hobby, and uh, it's entomology. Would you like to tell us something about how you actually uh, got interested in this? And I believe you actually wanted to be a zoologist at some point. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, uh, you know, when I was young, I was always very interested in natural history, you know, the natural world around us. And um, I, I used to keep a lot of bugs and, you know, all sorts of animals in the yard. Um, so much so that my father restrained me from going to the yard and said, look, you better do some studying sometime. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, as far as entomology, um, you know, here in Singapore, we've been a very small island country. Uh, there really isn't much room for bigger animals, uh, although I do have cats and dogs and fishes and so forth at home. Um, but there's no real room for research. You know, I'm the very inquiring sort of person. I like to find out more things. Uh, in early 1990, I realized that there were actually insects, unknown insects in the forest here in this country and in the surrounding countries around about me. Uh, and one of those insects I realized were what we call fascinates or stick insects, you know, walking sticks in America, they call them. And I tried to look up information in, in the local library and among the local entomologists in a university here in Singapore, and nobody could tell me very much because nobody was studying these things. And most of these uh, animals that or stick insects were found in this country were not even named, you know. Uh, and I was told there were only two species here. Uh, so I started to look at these insects. I went to the forest at night. I started looking out for them. And I've actually now found more than 51 species, some of them named by myself. Wow. <laughs> because they are new to science. Um, and... Over the last 20 years or so, uh, I've in fact now written three books on stick insects of Singapore and Malaysia. And this year, I'm currently writing a book about the stick insects of Sabah, Sarawak, and, and, and Borneo. So it's been an interesting journey, you know, looking at, at insects. And it's a nice balance to your work. <laughs> have your children been uh, interested in um, your stick insects? Or have they gone yes, off I mean, on their own way? Young, my children were young, uh, they, they always would go out with me uh, into the forest looking at for these insects. They love, you know, the forest. Uh, we'll go out, you know, early in the evening and we'll be sometimes out the whole night until the next morning, you know, sometimes I would have, have to carry them. <laughs> I remember once I went to Pulau Kioman, I had to carry my son through the forest because he was swimming the whole day and out we'd be the whole night. I had to carry him across the mountain and the same time looking for insects. <laughs> it's been you know, a good family time as well as uh, time of enjoyment uh, for myself as well as the time of discovery about the world that's around about us. Wonderful. Um, we'll just start to round off our interview at this point. So uh, bringing together some of the things that we've talked about today, if someone's listening, they think they have colorectal cancer or perhaps they're in early diagnosis or maybe even in a later stage, uh, what could you suggest to them um, in like point form and where do you think the future of, of colorectal uh, surgery and management is going? Well, I think 
you know, the, the first thing that a person should get is information. You see, because I think people perish because of a lack of knowledge. And we, we need to get right knowledge. So we need to look in the right places, the right knowledge. And often, uh, the World Wide Web is not the best place because, you know, there are so many things people say which are not actually knowledge, but, you know, just myths and, and fibs, really. Now, so get knowledge. Secondly, I think, is get a good friend or a good family member who will be supportive of, of the person who is the sort you know, supportive of what the person wants to do and wants to achieve. And thirdly, of course, you know, get a good doctor. But I think, you know, in that sequence, I think then you can have a, a very good control over the disease, very good control over what you want to achieve and what, what you want to do, and get, a, get the disease properly treated. And I think the future of uh, the specialty, as I understand it, as I understand you're asking me, would be, you know, there'll be more and more preventive measures coming up. But for those unfortunate enough to suffer disease, there'll be better treatment, giving, giving better cure rates, giving better function to patients who otherwise, you know, suffer mortality or suffer the side effects of uh, surgery or treatment. Very good. Um, now, this show does go all around the world, so many people are going to hear this today and they'll be very inspired, I think, not only by your own story, but this new model of the uh, Fortis Colorectal Hospital. Um, do you accept international patients? Yes, of course. Uh, we, we even currently are seeing patients from all over the world, uh, some from the US, even from Australia, from, from various parts of Asia. So, you know, international patients are definitely welcome here in this hospital. Fantastic. Well, we're going to finish up our time today. Have you got a little story that you might uh, be able to leave us with? Well, yes. I mean, uh, I, I had a patient not too long ago um, who was in one of the southern Asian countries who had what they said was an irresectable large tumour um, which they, they couldn't resect because they said it was too dangerous. Uh, so somehow he contacted me and he came over here and we were able to actually resect the tumour and uh, completely, and I'm happy to say that the patient is currently today alive and well with a good functioning anus and quite happy. That's an excellent story to finish on. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me today and to share your knowledge and information with our listeners to Navigating the Cancer Maze. And if you care to have a look on the website for Voice America, you'll find out all the places where you can connect with and read about um, Dr. Xia Chun and about the Fortis Colorectal Hospital in Singapore. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much, It's not often on Navigating the Cancer Maze that I come back and create a footnote after a guest has been on for an interview. But in this case, I'm going to... Um, Dr Francis Xia Chun, as you've probably realised, has been a very uh, pivotal person in my own life. When I had my neurostimulator implanted in Holland in 2003 and it had uh, a shelf life, I found myself in quite dire straits in Australia at the end of 2008 when my battery stopped and therefore the unit stopped. Um, and again, by this time, there was not anyone uh, in Australia 
who could do the procedure. It wasn't licensed here, although the equipment was here. So I was in rather a state, and I went through our public uh, health departments, health ministers, actually trying to access the surgery that would replace my uh, interstim unit. And it was the kindness and compassion that uh, Francis has talked about today because of his own experience as a patient, that he was willing to take me on as a patient and operate on me and replace that unit. And indeed, that did save my life. I was uh, unable to use my bowel at that time and it was very important for me to find someone. So here we have someone who really walks the talk and uh, I'm living experience of that. I'd like to also point out that uh, there's so much on uh, Dr. Francis Yachun that I couldn't even put it on the guest page, um, as well as all of the organisations that I've mentioned in the introduction. Uh, very specially, uh, he is uh, very well published. He's published in 33 chapters, in fact, of surgical textbooks and over 253 original articles in peer-reviewing surgical journals. So we've had someone today on Navigating the Cancer Maze who has not only the experience but the qualifications and the personal experience to help you navigate the colorectal cancer maze. Now, in saying that also, I'd like to refer you once again to the website. The website is very, very informational, and it is Fortis, F-O-R-T-I-S, Surgical, Fortis Surgical Hospital, that's all one word, dot com. On there, you'll find some amazing resources. If you are someone today who'd like to encourage your GP to get more involved, please do point them to the handbook that has been created for GPs. It's excellent. I managed to get a copy of it yesterday and um, I can't recommend it highly enough for your GP. As you know, we need to be educating people. That's a part of this show. It's why it exists and it's why we sponsor the show along with the Halvan Clinic in Germany because we really want people out there to get smart, get wise, get educated in the right way with the right people and the right information because we know that that uh, university of uh, Mr Internet can uh, be useful but also very, very misleading as Dr Xiaochun pointed out today. So do have a look online and do remember to go to grayschoolmedia.com where I'll have some extra articles. I just wanted to finish off with a little story that I didn't uh, uh, remind uh, Dr Xiaochun about and it was published in the Straits Times and uh, he says, and I'm going to quote this verbatim, he recalled what his radiotherapist, the late Dr. Chia Kim Boone, said when they met years after Dr. Xiaochun survived the cancer. He said to me, you're still alive. I thought you'd be dead by now. How wonderful that we have a survivor and a surgeon and a healer um, in Dr. Francis Xiaochun, and not to underestimate his amazing colleagues at the Fortis Colorectal Hospital. We'll see you next time on Navigating the Cancer Maze. Bye for now and have a great week.